Almost every family is impacted in some way by some form of addiction. We all have habits that we cling to, even if we know they are no good for us. And today's guest, Dr. Ellie Katz, is on a mission to help us tackle the everyday face of addiction by exploring root causes, personal struggles, and the gift of recovery. The Legendary Marriage Podcast begins now. If you're feeling more like roommates than soulmates, it's time for the Legendary Marriage Podcast. Every couple wants to have a great marriage, but the trials and challenges of life pull us in different directions. So we talk with amazing couples who share their stories and incredible experts who share their wisdom about building a life together. And at the end of every show, we give you a conversation starter so you and your spouse can build more intimacy and connection in your marriage by having conversations that matter. Welcome to the show. This hey. is episode 153, and we are your hosts, Danielle and Justin. Hey, how y'all doing? Hey, I need a day off. Yes, I hear you. I have that impending thought of like, we're coming into the holiday season, and it's like pretty soon it's going to be go, 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 and we're not going to have a moment to breathe. Yes. So I think I would like a spa day. What do you think about that? Uh, what kind of spa? Um, a spa where I don't have to listen or... Is this where um, I go? Let me get on today's sponsor, Groupon.com, and help you find your fun. <laughs> no, they're not, Groupon isn't sponsoring the podcast, but... Well, but we do love Groupon. But we love Groupon. So let me, let's find a Groupon and get you a spa day. And you know what? Groupon's also really good for date nights. Yeah. If you're ever wondering what to do on a date night... Just open your Groupon app and be like, oh my gosh, one of the most fun things we did one time, we were just like, what should we do for a date? So we just opened up Groupon and it was kind of like a Russian roulette type of deal, but nobody would die if yeah, you got it wrong. without the bullet to the brain, right? Um, and we found a place that was doing those yoga silks, you know, those Aerial real, silks, yeah, 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 those really long silky things. They hang from like the ceiling, like 50 feet up. And you like twist yourself up into them and everything. Yeah. It was super fun. It was. It was a lot of fun. And it was something we would never think to do. So this is your date night tip of the week, I guess. I know. I Use so Groupon to find fun, creative ways of actually <laughs> having having a date night. Okay. So something a little bit more serious. Yeah. So addiction. We're talking mm -hmm. about that this week with Ellie Katz. And it's one of those things, like once we got talking with her, we realized how you are connected to some sort of addiction issue, yeah, no yeah. matter who you are. Some kind of addiction impacts almost every single person or every single family. A family member way. or a friend or it's you or it was yeah. your parents or something like that. And she just has so, a really wise way of talking about... Um, you know, how to navigate all of that, yeah. which I really appreciate because I feel like a lot of times when you're in it, you feel so helpless and like there's no way to deal with it. Yeah. So uh, the reason we're bringing this episode, uh, this conversation today is uh, I stumbled across a stat that basically says one in five kids grows up in a home with some kind of addiction, mm -hmm. active addiction going on. And I think it speaks to our need as parents, as as couples, to find a way to address the challenges and trials of life in healthy ways, so that we can we can break some of that pattern. 
Yeah. And it's it's one of those things. And build better where, marriages. Yeah. And we know that addiction can run in family lines and things like that. So I, I really love your point about like it can be broken. You can write a new story for your family. And this conversation is all about that. So let's get to our conversation with Ellie Katz. We're so blessed and it's so wonderful to have Ellie Katz on the show. She's a psychotherapist. She really specializes. And an author. Oh my gosh. She's got so many books and a out. Gr- a grandmother of, you said 14? Yes. Yeah, oh, but you don't want to give it the whammy. So you say over 13. Over oh, 13. Okay, okay. okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she is just uh, an expert on helping families just really navigate the whole addiction thing. And I just yeah. can't wait to dive into your story. Ellie, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Thank you guys for recognizing I might have something to contribute. Oh my Oh my goodness. gosh, are you kidding? It seems like we have a lot to contribute. I mean, we were so excited to have you on the show because I feel like we keep hearing from couples over and over again that maybe there's an issue with one of the spouses dealing with addiction or um, maybe even their kids are grappling with it and they're not well, quite here. sure how to navigate it. So we're, we just so, can't wait to tap into the, all that knowledge. So I did a little bit of homework. Oh, please. All right. So I'm going to rattle off some statistics. Shoot. I, I think it's really important. Okay. Um, a, a quick, like less than five minute search, y'all. Age 13 is the average person's first drug or alcohol use. Mm. Nine out of 10 uh, are... Addicted in their teenage years. Get addicted in their teenage years. Yeah. Addiction impacts more than 40 million just in the United States and costs the the U.S. economy over $600 billion a year. So this is a topic that I'm really... Uh, like I've had some personal experience with, and I'm really, really passionate about this because I think we need, as couples, we need to be talking about this. So Justin, I have a surprise for you. Your statistics probably don't address certain mm, benign kind Mm -hmm. of addictions. Yeah. Like it might not be in your statistics that cigarette smoking's in there because nobody would send you to a rehab for that yeah or being addicted to the cola drinks nobody would Mm -hmm. or that you still bite your nails yeah so if you really want to look at statistics i would say there's hardly a household with people completely liberated from addictions or obsessions i mean our 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 smartphone devices entertainment, pornography, substances, it's everywhere. So if we're, if we as couples are not having these conversations, because I think marriage, we talk about this pretty often. Marriage is this place where we get to call each other forth to encourage each other, to keep growing, to becoming all that God created us to be. And if we're raising kids and we're not willing to have the conversation between us, how are we going to have these conversations with them? Yeah. So we've got to. The scary thing when we start to think about like our daughters in sec, our oldest is in second grade. She's going to be eight. Yeah. And she's starting to ask things that we're like, oh man, we better hurry up and get all the answers answers lined up here because we don't know. uh, We don't, we don't know all the answers. And so we have to start talking about it ourselves. Well, I'm, I'm curious for you, Ellie, Mm -hmm. when did you start realizing that 
addiction was something that you needed to be a voice out there to help others. I was five and I got my first allowance and I made a beeline for the corner store to buy a devil dog. (laughs) What's a devil dog? Oh, it was an amazing, adorable, funny-shaped chocolate sandwich with some kind of marshmallow, gooey vanilla in the middle. And I became addicted to devil dogs. Oh, really? Now, when, when did you realize, I'm sure at five, you definitely didn't realize it was like an addiction thing. Um, when did you realize that maybe you had an issue with addiction? I realized it when I was lying to my parents. Where were you? Oh, I was at my friends. Yeah, but I was at my friends eating what we don't have at home. Mm. Ah, ah, the coffee ice cream. Mm, the so Oreo. it was. So there's. Um, it sounds like so there's some kind of telltale signs that you may be dealing with addiction. Is hiding mm. one of them? Well, here's the bad news: if you're an overeater, there's not much to hide. You gain weight, and it's not something you can keep on the shoe shoe. Right. Uh, there are other addictions that you will not see. Obviously, if someone's biting their nails or pulling out their eyebrows or smoking cigarettes, you see it, you know it, you smell it, it's there. Mm-hmm. But for example, the pornography addictions, you can't see it on the person. Mm-hmm. You can't see the gambling on the person. Mm-hmm. You can't see the stalking on the person, obsessed with, no, no. You don't see that, but something like overeating or undereating, you will see immediately. And that's one of the go-to things for little kids. Obviously, they're not going to guzzle cognac or smoke a joint, but they will overeat. And you know you have a huge worldwide epidemic with the uh, obesity thing. Yeah, well, I'm wondering, like, you you had mentioned earlier that pretty much every household deals with some sort of an addiction issue, whether sure. anyone would put you in a facility or not, uh, could be negotiable. But yes. what makes kids, even at a, a young age, like you were five years old, what makes the addiction start to take root? And like, okay, this is you know, looking back, you can see at five, you had a problem. Of course, you probably didn't know when you were five years old, but um, what makes those addictions start to take root in someone at even such a young age? Well, in the particular case of food, food affects you in a psychophysiological manner. So it's the sugar or it's the chocolate or the caffeine or the fried stuff. It's very exciting and it works on you in a true biochemical manner. And then you want more and then you want more and then it becomes an issue in the family. And then there's some kind of a sit down and talk and you know, this isn't good and you're not going to be happy. And, but Hey, the more people get involved with you and your plate, the more you want to eat. 
So beyond even that level of biochemistry, it does something for you. Mm. It does something for you. And it might do something for you in a kind of bizarre negative way in your relationship with your family. I mean, think of it. The family is begging the obese little boy to start playing baseball, to go out more with friends, to get out of the kitchen. The other side of that is the family is begging their anorexic, bulimic daughter who weighs 45 pounds, please, darling, eat something. Don't throw it up. Please, darling, you're not going to be well. Okay, go argue with people that are staunchly addicted. You get nowhere because it's not logical. Mm. So when you, you kind of referred to this when like, if you have like a family meeting or a sit down, like, you know, we need to like have the, a talk about it. I feel like a lot of times maybe it's a, a shame cycle too. It's like, oh crap, my whole family thinks I'm a failure and I'm screwing up big time. And you know, I should stop. I really should stop. And then they do it more and then they feel even worse. And then their family still says, you know, you need to stop. And you're like, I'm, I'm trying. And, you know, so as parents, what do you do instead of like the family meeting or the talk? Like, how do you actually affect any help or any change with? Okay, you pray. You pray. I'm dealing with the families of addicts. Let's get this straight. I've been working in a rehab for 16 years. We have addictions of every type and color. Mm. We have, uh, we even have people that are addicted to other people. Sure. Codependency, and it's, it's really quite disturbing. We have people that have OCD, another thing. Uh, Half of my male adult patients in the later years now are gamblers. Okay, so there's a lot of lying. There's a lot of cover-up. There's a lot of shame. There's a lot of blame. It's a disaster, especially in the situation with the gamblers because they're not gambling their own money anymore. They have to be gambling money they borrowed from their brother-in-law, from the neighbor, with a lie, with a story, with the loan sharks. It's not something you can see, but it's something that is so obnoxious and upsetting and affecting the entire family. So there might be hints and denial, and then there might be insinuations after the hints that we can get all the way to begging. I'm begging you to stop or threaten. You keep doing this, we're going to leave. But the uh, people that you borrowed the money from are banging on the door. Mm -hmm. They want their money back. That was for a new car. That was for a trip. And this ass took and blew their money in five minutes. Yeah. It's very, very hard. And again, all this issue of relationships, it's, it's, it's so destructive. And you're so how feeling do you, so helpless. Right. You said, you know, obviously prayer, part of it. Um, but do you just kind of let them do their own thing and work it out on their own? Or like, how can you as a loving family member engage with them, you know, and want the best for them and try to help, help them? Or should you try to help them? 
Well, Danielle, do you know the serenity prayer of the 12 step meetings? Yeah, I've heard of it. I don't know it, but I know what you're Let me say it to you. Get ready. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. Courage to change the things I can and the wisdom to know the difference. Courage to change the things I can are only about me. I cannot change someone else. I cannot change the past. So the families are in a very peculiar position. They're in a very peculiar position. And the reason I said prayer is because the 12-step recovery programs and support groups are all based on the higher power. They're all spiritually expanded thinking, more even than psychologically. Mm. Yeah. But the families are in a big mess. Your relationships are in a big mess. And I was talking to Shani, my beloved editor, assistant, right hand, left hand, whatever. And I said to her, we need also to talk about the relationships that addicts have with their dealers, with the other people they're drinking with every night, with their peculiar, self-destructive, impossible relationships with people. And one of the things that we do at the rehab is you don't go back to those pals that are still using. Forget about it. You may profess great love and tenderness toward them, but hey, those relationships are dangerous. Yeah, they're sucking you in. They're sucking you in. This could be the person you're married to. This could be your child. This could be whoever you have poor, poor relations with. After you finish rehab, you should be significantly altered. And if you are, then these relationships will either bring you down or kind of seduce you back into where you were. Relapse. Yeah. You're so right in so many ways, obviously. And and community is something we talk about with couples. Like it's, it's one of the kind of indicators. If we're working with a couple and they don't have friends, they don't have a community around them, it, it gets a whole lot harder to restore a marriage from a you crisis. believe it. It's me and you and you and me and me and you and you and me yeah. against the world. And so we spin no, we around. Have that. And, and there's the, the kind of the old trope, you know, you will rise or fall to the level of the people around you. Oh, I think that's gorgeous. And, and it just, it's so true. Like, so when you have some kind of catalytic experience, recovery or a rehab program, uh, co- go into a, a retreat or a conference or something where, where it's that mountaintop kind of experience. Justin, that may be why I help my people. Yeah. You just, you just hit the nail on the head. It's because I'm in a state of glory and sanity and goodness and kindness and love. And that raises the level of the people around me. It mm. inspires them. Yeah. I yes. love that. And I, I wanted to ask too, um, with the kids, you said like if you, like there's a lot of a, situations that we hear from couples where one of the other spouses is an addict or is dealing with addiction. And then how do they, you said pray for them, but how do they also 
kind of shield and keep their kids healthy Mm. in a circumstance where, you know, their dad or their mom is steeped in addiction. I mean, I feel like, yes, prayer, but also there's these sweet little things that are getting destroyed by the moment. Like, how do you deal with, um, you know, helping those kids not, you know, get damaged by a parent that's an addict? Well, here's the bad news, sweetie. People do damage their children by the very fact that they're addicts. They're at my rehab for eight or nine months. So whatever family structure was before is clearly changed and significantly changed because daddy's not home or mommy's not home. Yeah. Uh, What was it like when they were home and actively using and arguing and this and that? Also very bad. I have a group I do every week. It's my father's group. And the men are really fighting for a chance to be there because we do a lot of altered states of consciousness. And yeah, we talk about what happened to your life as a father what kind of father did you have? What kind of example do you want to be setting? How do you want to change this? Because being a father is of enormous importance to them or they wouldn't want to be in my group. Yeah. It's of enormous importance and they're, they're, they're filled with terrible feelings of remorse and guilt. What have I been you know, demonstrating to my child coming home drunk, hitting mama, having a short temper with you guys, the the incredible instability in our house, the scary stuff where people are banging on the door threatening mommy. It's, it's an outrage. You, you bring up something really important. It's just that, that the significance, uh, finding meaning and impact and significance in life, um, both, both in hindsight, but also, you know, coming out of addiction or out of some transition to, to anchor in something meaningful. And, and so many times what, what I've heard people in our experiences with people in addiction, it's just, they just got to get a job and then they'll be okay. They've just got to stop the drinking and then they'll be okay. It's, it's like the, just stop. It's the white knuckle grab the steering wheel as hard as you can and just keep going um, and hope that you don't fall asleep at the wheel. And so it's a big, big metaphor I use all the time, not to fall asleep at the wheel of your psychic uh, experience. Is it so dangerous? Look, there are many, many sides to this. This, the side of you get sober and then people around you don't exactly admit or admit to themselves that they're addicts and they want to keep going out to the bar. They want to keep having that party Saturday night. They're taking all kinds of drugs. And then how do you have a realistic relationship once you're sober with people who are still having a party? Very, very complicated. And then this whole thing about parents and children and husbands and wives, Direct me. What would you like me to talk about? <laughs> well, I think just along that line, what's behind addiction for people? Like, like, like is, is Some it? Some people it's curiosity. Sure. Some people it's literally 
you're curious. Some people are very, very sad, very, very anxious, very, very um, angry. Yeah. Okay? And somehow maybe drinking or smoking dope. These are these minor little dips. Everyone does it. You say a 13-year-old now, according to the statistics. Um, so it's a kind of a curiosity thing combined with your emotional state. Let's say, for example, you're profoundly shy. You're profoundly shy. You're an introvert. You'd like to talk to that girl and maybe go on a date with her, but you don't have much confidence. You don't think you're very good looking or very smart. And somehow you have realized that when you take a glass of wine or a shot of whiskey, you feel significantly altered. Like, hey, I'm kind of feeling cool. Like, feeling no pain. Like, I could step up and ask her out. Hey, it's nice. amazing how benign that is in our culture and how prevalent it is, right? Like, hey, have a drink, go talk to the girl. Like, just like, sure. it, like it's, it's, sure. it's, it's so just unseen. It's so, it feels so insignificant. And yet it's a part of a culture of driving people towards that. But so, so I guess is addiction. Is addiction the disease? Is it the symptom? Is it, is it a result or is it a cause? Oh, my dear, you're marvelous. I remember decades ago, I read a book by Arthur Janoff called The Primal Scream. And it was a, a very, very interesting kind of therapy. And he talks about that it's the cause and the result. Mm. The scream could be, causing the result or it could be a result of the whatever was being released but it's hard to say it's kind of that chicken and the egg thing i don't know which came first yeah but they operate in tandem ultimately so what happens is you've had a long day at work or whatever pressure hey i'm going to come home and take you know a chill pill <laughs> I'm going to take a chill pill. Yeah. So let's say you have a Xanax around, or let's say you have a joint around, or let's say you have some whiskey around, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's kind of take the edge. Yeah. yeah. Take the edge off. Now, nobody in their right mind would start with heroin. It right. escalates, sure. you know, no one is such a jackass, so <laughs> completely, completely oblivious to how huge, huge heroin is. Yeah. So you do that and then some people say, you want to have some cocaine. Well, how will I feel on cocaine? Ooh. I feel powerful. I feel smart. Ooh. And then, hello, the brain starts saying, I'll have some more of that. And the mind says, I like the way I felt with that. Not bad. 
You know what I find interesting about some of those drugs like cocaine and some of the other ones? It actually just um, heightens some of the natural existing hormones and chemicals in your body to like make you feel like, oh, hey, I've got this endorphin high or I've got this, um, you know, testosterone high or whatever it is. It's like it actually it's it's just making you feel more of some of the existing things that are already in your body, which like if you go to the gym, you're going to get an endorphin high. You're going to get like, I mean, not to the extent probably that when you like a good workout, having great sex. Yeah. I mean, like there are other things, right. That they can make your body get that high. um, If you just activate it within your body. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. Well, I do, and I'm really very happy to hear you say it. There are indubitably other ways to feel good. I'm a great, great guru of the feel good. In fact, if you read my book, When Same People Do Insane Things, the thing I talk about is the six essentials. And the first, the first is how to harness a good mood and be in a good mood. Mm. How marvelous. I am all for happiness, not the kind you get from a stupid cheap high, not the kind you get from eating Oreos, but the kind that you get because you see a, a flower and you noticed two days ago that it hadn't actually bloomed. And now you see it and you feel some kind of awe, like how nature works. Oh, how lovely. Or you just feel like listening to a James Taylor album. Nice. Or somebody gives you a smile on the New York subway and they don't want anything from you. They're just being human with you. It's marvelous. Mm -hmm. Things that you need to know about that guarantee your good mood. And now we interrupt this episode of the Legendary Marriage Podcast to bring you a word from our sponsors, us. <laughs> All right. So we know that communication is the hardest part of marriage, right? Yeah. And the story goes something like this. You talk about the bills, the crushing the chores, keeping the kids alive. But it feels like you become really good roommates, yeah. not the soulmates you were when you got married. Maybe the busyness of life and the trials and challenges of raising a family have just worn you down. Maybe you're just more comfortable having transactional conversations instead of passionate, transformational, exciting ones. Oh, uh, the good news is that by making seven small shifts, you can get on the same page and have conversations that matter and then infuse more intimacy and connection into your marriage. Oh yeah. So what are those shifts? We've spent more than a decade researching and working with couples to distill down the seven most powerful shifts that couples can make to build more intimacy and connection. Nobody else is teaching this stuff at any price. And this free resource is available now at legendarymarriage.com slash seven secrets, the number seven secrets. And the good news is you can make these shifts, just break out of that roommate zone and transform your marriage without making your spouse sit through some boring workshop, endless counseling sessions, or sitting knee to knee naked in some weird sweat lodge, braiding each other's hair and holding hands while a bunch of people sit around staring at you singing Kumbaya. Was that just us that did Awkward. <laughs> so grab this free resource today at legendarymarriage.com slash seven, the number C. Secrets. 
and start building a life, a love, and legacy together today. And now, back to the show. Look, let's face it. We want to be happy. Nobody is such a sap that's going to tell you they enjoyed being angry, sad, or frightened. No. But unfortunately, that is the state of things. Mm-hmm. So you get used to your way of being happy or chilling out. The problem is that the thing starts to control you. And it's no longer even in the realm of this makes me happy. It's if I don't do this, I'm screwed because mm. you know, I'm going to go through withdrawal. And many, many, many things have uh, that aspect of physical and mental withdrawal, and it's horrible. Mm. I, I believe one of the reasons people stay addicted to heroin is that the crisis of withdrawal is so daunting, you'd rather scrounge around, live like a dog, endanger your life day after day rather than withdraw from it. So horrible. Ellie, w- w- because I'm just I'm picturing, uh, uh, like I know I've heard people ask the question before, sure. but like to the to the mom or the dad who's going, okay, how do we how do we prevent addiction? How do we like raise our kids to be like? What do we do to help them be not addicts? Is it something is it I said in the beginning of the program? Is pray. I know that sounds a little oy. But I'm seriously, how could you prevent anything? Remember I said, God grant me the serenity. You want courage to change the things you can. The things you can, oh, well, they're not really in your hands. Mm -hmm. You send a kid off to school. You pick the lovely school. There's lovely teachers and lovely children go to the school. And then one kid gets a thing with your kid and they bully the hell out of your child. They make that child's life miserable. They alter your child's feeling of confidence. They make your child possibly vengeful. Oh man, what could happen? How could you prevent it? You couldn't. So you maybe sit with the teacher and maybe you talk to the parents of the other kid. It could be. But I hear you saying too, like just set that foundation Mm -hmm. in faith, like with your family. So I feel like too, if you have that strong connection, even a faith connection with your kids at a young age where you know you pray for each other and you know, I feel like even just in that prayer type of thing, like if you share that with your family, your lines of communication are a little bit more open there you just have this habit of like hey we pray for each other we bring to the you know maybe let's say you pray around the table you know we we pray together about our day and the things that happen and the things we're looking forward to and the things we're thankful for it's like i feel like the whole idea of prayer with your family just opens up a lot of doors um for people to really share what's on their hearts I love what you're saying because I really, really believe it. I'll go back to what I said, which is that the 12-step recovery, which is the classic 
way of working with addiction, the classic journey to recovery is almost exclusively spiritual. Mm. It's so gorgeous that it's, it's, you must, the second you get off with me, read the 12 steps, your head will spin. It's yeah. so lovely. And it's so wise. Um, I'm looking on my shelf what, right now to find my 12 steps. What are you looking at? Oh, he's got the book over there. Well, we'll... Yeah, I've, I've done that work, not not out of a substance addiction perspective, but just uh, in in my own healing and restoration journey with my counselor sure. and everything. Sure. Um, and, and yeah, it, it totally actually doing that work a few years ago completely changed in so many ways my my view of religion and the dogmas that that are attached, like in in the Christian worldview, but also just my relationship with God. My the entire way that I see things, the, the yeah. twelve step just just shifted things for me in a big way. Me too, absolutely, absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm in the program for twenty six years, and I had dinner last night with my sponsor of twenty five years. Wow! So I gotta say, look, What's I never that? was obese, and I never was a uh, successful anorexic bulimic that weighs forty five pounds. Yeah, but Oreos cold. Yeah, coffee, ice cream, Ben and Jerry, or Haagen Dazs. Ooh, Ellie, please <laughs> have some. You more. mentioned Oreos. Did you were listing off some stuff earlier, like flowers that open and the, the amazingness of a hummingbird and so on. And you threw Oreos in there somewhere, <laughs> and and I'm not kidding. But for a moment, I was like. Mm. Oh yeah, Oreos. Justin wait, has. Wait, 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 I need to pay attention. Justin is a sugar sugar I, I, addict. Oh, sure. I'm a sugar addict. Yeah. Well, I want to. I want to. I, I, I had, I had to make like, my ah, peace ah. with food. I had to make my peace with food, yeah. so I am no longer afraid. When I initially started the OA program for, yeah, I, my name is Ellie, compulsive overeater. They kind of scared the bejesus out of bus with the sugar and the flour so there were years that i described my abstinence as an overeater by someone who abstained from sugar and flour yeah and then i found that not to be the point i am asking god to help me have another clean abstinent day of compulsive overeating not doing it so if i eat sugar and i eat flour okay the next meal will be a salad. The next meal, I'll pay attention. I won't go dive into the sugar because I had one cookie. I don't need 20. My father had a great line. He said, pretend you ate it already. Yeah. Oh. Wow, Dad. That's really wise. Ah. I like that. My relationship with food is what was always based in uh, some kind of scarcity talking about scarcity i live in the holy land that was very heavy populated with people who went through the holocaust yeah so scarcity is definitely part of the uh, psyche here or was for sure well i i grew up my parents were both depression babies okay and so just like it wasn't it wasn't like nail biting. Oh my gosh, are we going to like, like we, we had a very comfortable life growing up and yet there was that, that pretty consistent sense of like, okay, but it could all disappear tomorrow. Sure. 
My mother used to say, my mom was born in 1911. Money is round. It can roll that way or this way. Yeah, yeah. Sure. I love yeah. it. Okay, so Ellie, I want to switch modes just for a second Go here. Go ahead. You, you are- want to talk about sex? Um, oh, sure. Even I was gonna- though I'm 70, I could talk about sex. Oh, all right. Well, I was going to ask how you met your husband because this Nothing is... Nothing about sex. No? <laughs> I see somebody off camera saying, no, no, don't go there, Ellie. <laughs> oh, all of a sudden we lost the feed. What is she doing? Um, no, we're just kidding. Just kidding. Um, yeah. Actually, hey, I am still in love with a man that I met in October 44 years ago. Wow. And when I see his pickup truck, he's an artist. We live on a farm. And when I see his pickup truck in the driveway, I go, oh, goody, he's home. Yes. I'm still so in love with this man. Wow. I married him three weeks after I met him. What? what? Wait, what? Wait, okay. My father, so my father proposed. What? Wait, no, wait, just stop. Wait, Ellie, start it over. Start let's, from the beginning. Start let's from hear the this beginning. story. He was a student in America when I was doing my doctorate. I knew some of the people he lived with in an apartment. Um, It was October, I think Columbus Day. And I went to have a meditation session with one of the guys he lived with. And instead of meditating, the guy fell asleep. I got tired of that. I got up and went out. And there was my husband. And I got so excited to see him, I slipped and I fell on the stairs. He picked me up and he looked at me and said, are you hungry? He had had a dinner party the night before. He made such fabulous food and served it on ceramic plates that he had made. And uh, that was a Monday night. And by uh, Saturday, I took him home to meet my parents. Wow. And my father tested him in the library. He asked a lot of questions about his family and his values as a human being. And it was very successful. And the very next day, my father called me up and said, this is the man for you. Do not introduce him to your girlfriends. Do not (laughs) ask any unnecessary questions let me take care of it and my father the next day called him and proposed to him and then my father sent a spy his cousin listen to this name in hebrew zerubbabel he went (laughs) as a spy to meet my husband's mom she was a widow and he met her he flew to israel to see that I was marrying into a fine, loving, wonderful, beautiful, good value family. Yeah. He came back and said to my father, yes, sir, re. And we were married three weeks later. Wow. Okay. Have you ever heard of a story like that where the parents were so involved in the, in the engagement? Actually, my mother wasn't involved, yeah. but my dad, my dad really was, uh, 
Well, he was amazing. I'm the daughter of an amazing, amazing man. Yeah. So thanks to your dad, 44 years later, you're still uh, in love more than ever. And more and more than 13 grandchildren. Remember, no whammy. More than 13 (laughs) grandchildren. Oh, my gosh. Okay, you gotta so, leave some mystery to it, right? More than thirteen. Oh, yeah. we, don't, we don't know how many. Whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> and it's know. always it's always growing. I'm sure. Um, so I want to ask, just thinking about um, the addiction story a little bit more. Just one kind of final question I have for you. So I know you're very involved in helping your clients with the whole rehab process and, you know, getting better and you don't want them to relapse and of course all that. So what happens when they've left a wake of destruction behind them for years and years and years and then they go to a rehab and they stay there for a few months and and they get better and you know they're feeling great and they're they're not going to relapse um how do they incorporate back into real life when they've done so much damage with trust and you know everything across the board Okay, Danielle, a lot of the people do get divorced. I can't I can't deny that. People do get divorced. I do a lot of the marriage and family therapy and I try to repair what's reparable. And when I see that it's not only the addiction, but the whole relationship really, really has no basis and there's no mutual trust and so many things are off. I might ultimately say, what do you really want to do? Because the conventional thing is let's fix it. Let's get back together. And sometimes that's not the most successful move. Yeah. And Because too much damage has been done. Too much damage has been done. Too many things have been uh ugly and uh, scary and mean and they don't want to try again. They tried so many times. I have said, I have said, maybe you have tried incorrectly. I am a champion of that. You can put a tremendous amount of effort into something to change, but you're doing it incorrectly. So obviously you are not going to have any kind of impressive results. Mm-hmm. Obviously not. When can it be fixed, or when you know? And the part of that too is like, or what is does it, it take? Or can you not? Is it possible to fix some of it and just understand that not all of it can be fixed? I don't know. Hard to say. Each each individual relationship has its uniqueness. Um you're married to someone who's been lying to you for years, stealing from you, betraying you, you might find these to be irreconcilable Mm. uh, pain and uh, whatever. Look, it's rather clear that you guys have tried and you've tried and you've failed and you've tried and you've failed and Look, one of the things I'll tell you that is not pretty, and that is that um, if you're going to look back at statistics, Justin, relapse and recovery and 
truly getting over this is not all that uh, impressive. The numbers are low. Yeah. The numbers are low. Our numbers at our rehab are significantly higher than the world and partially due to the amount of time you spend with us living in our therapeutic community. Time is a big factor. But I have to say, lots of people relapse. They go back to what is known, what is comfortable, even gruesome, but entirely familiar. And, And a lot of people could come out of rehab with great debt and the divorce and everybody is mad at them. And they they lose hope very quickly, which is why I reiterate, being in a good mood ensures your enthusiasm. You're not going to quit. You're going to be marvelously relentless, mm. marvelously relentless about your recovery, irrespective of the price you have to pay. You may have lost your marriage, lost your money. Everyone in the family thinks you stink. but you can't afford the dubious luxury of using again. Yeah. Mm. But that doesn't that's, always happen. That's so good. Okay. But that's what it takes, yeah. Yeah, you have to do whatever it takes, basically. Speaking, um, in, a, in a final turn, speaking of what it takes. Please. We ask so many of our guests this one question. You want me to up. sing a song? Uh, well, uh, we'd love to hear you sing. Maybe this, you um, could put this to a song. What, Allie, what does it take to build a legendary marriage? Sneak into my house, be a fly on the wall, and figure it out for me. Oh, Oh, she's got the secret and she doesn't want to share it. I I, love it. I love it. Okay, so Ellie, we're going to include in the show notes the links to your books, um, what you're up to, and uh, your Facebook page and all that. It has been a distinct pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much, Ellie Katz, for joining us today. I had a ball. You're lovely, lovely, lovely. And now the talk about it segment of the show. Each week, we challenge you to set a time with your spouse to have a conversation that matters. All right. So here's your conversation starter this week. How has addiction impacted your life and family? Mm. Little ways, little ways, big ways, tangential, parallel. No, you Enough know with the, the algebra, trigonometry, ge- geometry. That's geometry. Whatever. <laughs> All right. That's it for today's show. Grab your copy of The Seven Secrets of Legendary Marriages over at legendarymarriage.com slash seven secrets. Lastly, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the show so we know how we're doing and other couples can find us. Hey, thanks for listening to this episode of The Legendary Marriage Podcast. This is Danielle and Justin reminding you, don't settle for an ordinary marriage. Make yours legendary. Legendary.